Chapter forty nine of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter forty nine. A Novel Mode of Equitation. When consciousness returned, I found that I was lying on the ground, and my dog, the innocent cause of my captivity, was licking my face. I could not have been long senseless, for the savages were still gesticulating violently around me. One was waving them back. I recognized him. It was Dacoma. The chief uttered a short harangue that seemed to quiet the warriors. I could not tell what he said, but I heard him use frequently the word Quetzalcoatl. I knew that this was the name of their god, but I did not understand at the time what the saving of my life could have to do with him. I thought that Dacoma was protecting me from some feeling of pity or gratitude, and I endeavored to recollect whether I had shown him any special act of kindness during his captivity. I had sadly mistaken the motives of that splendid savage. My head felt sore. Had they scalped me? With the thought I raised my hand, passing it over my crown. No, my favorite brown curls were still there. But there was a deep cut along the back of my head, the dent of a tomahawk. I had been struck from behind as I came out, and before I could fire a single bullet. Where was Rube? I raised myself a little and looked around. He was not to be seen anywhere. Had he escaped as he intended? No. It would have been impossible for any man, with only a knife, to have fought his way through so many. Moreover, I did not observe any commotion among the savages, as if an enemy had escaped them. None seemed to have gone off from the spot. What then had— Ha! Now I understood, in its proper sense, Rube's jest about his scalp. It was not a double entendre, but a moat of triple ambiguity. The trapper, instead of following me, had remained quietly in his den, where, no doubt, he was at that moment watching me, his scapegoat, and chuckling at his own escape. The Indians, never dreaming that there were two of us in the cave, and satisfied that it was now empty, made no further attempts to smoke it. I was not likely to undeceive them. I knew that Rube's death or capture could not have benefited me, but I could not help reflecting on the strange stratagem by which the old fox had saved himself. I was not allowed much time for reflection. Two of the savages, seizing me by the arms, dragged me up to the still-blazing ruin. Oh, heavens! Was it for this Tacoma had saved me from their tomahawks? For this the most cruel of deaths? They proceeded to tie me hand and foot. Several others were around, submitting to the same treatment. I recognized Sanchez, the bullfighter, and the red-haired Irishman. There were three others of the band, whose names I had never learnt. We were in an open space in front of the burning ranch. We could see all that was going on. The Indians were clearing it of the fallen and charred timbers to get at the bodies of their friends. I watched their proceedings with less interest, as I now knew that Seguin was not there. It was a horrid spectacle when the rubbish was cleared away, laying bare the floor of the ruin. More than a dozen bodies lay upon it, half-baked, half-roasted. Their dresses were burned off, but by the parts that remained still intact from the fire we could easily recognize to what party each had belonged. The greater number of them were Navajos. There were also the bodies of hunters smoking inside their cindery shirts. I thought of Gary, but as far as I could judge he was not among them. There were no scalps for the Indians to take. The fire had been before them, and had not left a hair upon the heads of their dead foemen. Seemingly mortified at this, they lifted the bodies of the hunters, 
and tossed them once more into the flames that were still blazing up from the piled rafters. They gathered the knives, pistols, and tomahawks that lay among the ashes, and carrying what remained of their own people out of the ruin, placed them in front. They then stood around them in a circle, and with loud voices chanted a chorus of vengeance. During all this proceeding we lay where we had been thrown, guarded by a dozen savages. We were filled with fearful apprehensions. We saw the fire still blazing, and we saw that the bodies of our late comrades had been thrown upon it. We dreaded a similar fate for our own. But we soon found that we were reserved for some other purpose. Six mules were brought up, and upon these we were mounted in a novel fashion. We were first set astride on the bare backs, with our faces turned tailwards. Our feet were then drawn under the necks of the animals, where our ankles were closely corded together. We were next compelled to bend down our bodies until we lay along the backs of the mules, our chins resting on their rumps. In this position our arms were drawn down until our hands met underneath where they were tied tightly by the wrists. The attitude was painful, and to add to this our mules, not used to be thus packed, kicked and plunged over the ground to the great mirth of our captors. This cruel sport was kept up even after the mules themselves had got tired of it, by the savages pricking the animals with their spears and placing branches of the cactus under their tails. We were fainting when it ended. Our captors now divided themselves into two parties and started up the barranca, taking opposite sides. One went with the Mexican captives and the girls and children of the tribe. The larger party, under Dacoma, now head chief, for the other had been killed in the conflict, guarded us. We were carried up that side on which was the spring, and arriving at the water were halted for the night. We were taken off the mules and securely tied to one another, our guard watching us without intermission till morning. We were then packed as before, and carried westward across the desert. End of chapter 49